I wouldn't expect you to say this, but I will. I was extremely disappointed with Phil Neville's comments after the game. I still am. I don't know Phil, but I was extremely disappointed. I thought it was very disrespectful. And I thought he was just a bit tone deaf at the time. He, he just missed the moment there. It was a nonsense game, and I quote him, he called it a nonsense game. People in women's football, people involved in England, people, fans of the team, people who understood the women's game would never have called it a nonsense game. That period of one season moving on because I felt like I improved. It really fueled me to have to prove myself. Mm. And then I got better. And this is where, when I talk about management, coaches and management, you just need to treat people with respect. There's been moments when I was at Lyon, you know, I think mm. there's games where I felt like I should have been starting games and I didn't. Mm. The manager still treated me exactly the same if he was playing me or not. And I've had managers who wouldn't do that. Even though I wasn't in the places that I wanted to be, and you know, the, the common common theme from these clubs during that period was, oh, we didn't think you'd be as good as what you are. I felt like I was at the bottom of a ladder climbing up it, but I think every step gave me more motivation and gave me continued that fire to then get to the next step and the next step. I think as players, you, you just want the truth. You want honesty, you want to be respected and you want to be communicated well too. I think they're the moments that really test you and test your character and I've always been of that mindset don't have any regrets even if it's a really crappy moment you know this this too shall pass and it does Welcome to the ProPlayer.com podcast. Today's guest is an England lioness, played all around the world in the NWSL, in Australia, and in the English Women's Super League. Over 50 caps for England. She was the Golden Boot winner at Euro 2017. She's a Champions League winner and also has a bronze medal from the FIFA Women's World Cup. I'm delighted to introduce the one and the only Jodie Taylor. Welcome, Jody. Thanks, Goffy. Nice to be on. Great to be talking to you. Great to be talking to you. So many things to get through in this episode. So much insight and experience, Jody, from your playing days and your story, which is phenomenal. Uh, hopefully, we have time to get to it all. You, you're one of the, the, the golden generation of Lioness players who came from perhaps what we would consider the amateur game into the professional world that we know now. So you would have started out with a really interesting soccer story and, and lots of things to overcome to even play, I should imagine, at times as a young player. But can you tell us a little bit of that to start with? Yeah, well, it all started when I was about seven years old. Um, I'm one of four girls and my dad, huge football fan, you know, grew up in Liverpool, supported Liverpool, he was a season ticket holder, played a bit, never quite made it. Um, but I think he always wanted a son. So then when me and my twin came along, 
I think he knew he wasn't going to be having any more kids uh, and isn't going to have a son. So he got me and my twin sister out in the back garden. And I ended up taking to, to football. I absolutely fell in love with playing soccer. Um, my twin, not so much. But um, it, that's kind of where it started. And my earliest memories of playing was with my dad. We, he got me a goal. And I just remember taking shots on him. And he, he'd be throwing the ball up for me to volley at him. And so that really is my first memory of playing. And no other girls played. So back then, I didn't know of any other girls. I was playing with the boys at school. I just loved it before school, lunch break, afternoon break after school. Um, and then eventually they let me on the boys team. And it wasn't until I was 11 that um, I think I, I, was, I was in year six of primary school, so elementary school, and the teacher scrounged up some some girls from somewhere. We, we joined this um, tournament. We ended up winning it. Um, and then that's where I got kind of spotted and scouted from Tramia Rovers. They were the ones that put the tournament on. And then from there, that's where I got selected to play for Tramia Rovers. And that was about age 11, 12 that, that I started playing for them. And they had a women's team. So I kind of went through the pathway and the age groups. Again, not really knowing that girls played. I, I remember that tournament so vividly. I, I couldn't believe the number of girls playing in it because I've just never seen anything like it. So anyways, I, I started playing with Tramia. I went through the age groups and, and moved up quite quickly. And it back then you kind of alluded to it the game wasn't professional I didn't know it was a career I just did it because I loved it and followed that passion so it was when I was about 15 I got my first cap or debut for the Tramia Rovers women's team and again it wasn't pro but it was the highest level of, of soccer in England at that time so yeah I was 15 playing with all, with all these women and then my I guess I, I progressed majorly from from playing at that level at such a young age. And then that's where I kind of got into the England youth age groups. I was in the U16s um, and then I got moved up an age group from there. Um, but then I had a really bad injury. I got I was playing for Tramia um, and I got into a 50-50 with a goalie. I ended up breaking my leg in the game. And it was a quite a serious injury. So I kind of fe fell away from... Um, the national team the youth age groups at that time and um kind of made me reconsider a lot of things and and when I got back from the injury you know I was still playing for Tramia we lost all of our older players because you know they started to introduce a bit of money to the game and we lost most of our players because they got given gas money so they got um you know expense travel expenses and a 30 pound win bonus which is what probably about 40 dollars um, for winning the game and we end up losing all of our experienced players so it's kind of a kids team so it's kind of in that period that I was considering what I'm going to do still the game was amateur so I knew I kind of had to get a job or study so um, I had a teammate who joined um, she's a goalkeeper Joe Fletcher and she joined Tramia and she'd just come back from a scholarship in America so she'd tell me all about it she loved it she was missing the US and from I guess that period of watching Bend it like Beckham really got me interested in um, you know wanting to be in America. So uh, from there, uh, I, she got me in touch with a with a college coach, and he came over to watch some games. I went out for a visit, and I was just sold on going. And I remember the England youth set up, set up telling me, if you end up going, you're gonna kind of put your injury your England career at risk. But it was just a gut feeling that I had that I had to do it and you know, to be able to go on a scholarship, get an education, which was really important to me, and to be in a professional environment 
and to experience something new I, I you know I, I was sold on it so yeah I ended up going to college in the, in the US and that's kind of where it all began in the states well first of all we have to we have to say a huge thank you to one of England's most storied and traditional clubs Tranmere Rovers uh, and also to your dad England owes a debt of gratitude to both for what has transpired in, in recent decades, of course. I really want to get into the, the college pathway into the US, obviously, with us being based here in North America. There's a lot of people who will be listening who will love to hear about how that came about. Can we deal with that time in your career you talked about where you got that first major injury? Because a lot of players, aspiring players, will be coming up doing the same thing. And they, you know, they might at some point find themselves in the same position. How did you... Can you remember back to being that young and not being able to play perhaps for the first time and perhaps remember, you know, how you got through that or, or some advice you would give to, to younger players who might be going through the same thing? Yeah, I, you know, I was 16. I think I was 16 when I had this big injury and I was playing so well and, like I said, I was getting people up age groups. Um, so to get an injury, I was unexpected. I don't think anyone expects to get injured, but a serious injury like that, I certainly didn't expect it. And... Yeah, it was hard. I remember it just being really difficult. It was the first time I um, had a big injury. And at the time, the game wasn't prone, didn't have the resources. And I was really fortunate to be involved with Tramia Rovers. And the, the women's team had, were close connected to the men. And, and back then, the men's team were in, in the league below the Premier League. So they were a decent club. And I'm, I'll never forget, and I'm very grateful for Les Parry, who's the physio at, at Tramia. So the men's physio took me in. So like I said, we trained twice a week. It wasn't professional where we had a, a volunteer physio. It was just not really not what, what was required to come back from such serious injury. So anyway, the men's physio took me on and I remember being with them every day through the summer. Um, and he, yeah, he, he got me back to full health, fortunately. And I'm really grateful for, for having that level of support because, you know, that it's, it was a big injury to bounce back from. I was out for about six or seven months with that. And it was hard, really hard to not be playing, seeing your teammates. You know, you, you worry about not developing and being left behind. And it was all new. You know, I throughout my career, I've had a lot of injuries now and you can get a bit better with them. But it's hard that your identity is what you do every day. Um but I just kept belief and you have to stay positive and just keep working towards and progressing every day, step by step. And, you know, it was great. I ended up, it took me a while once I got back playing too. It's not like as soon as you're back from injury, you're going to be back at your level. You know, it's really unrealistic, but um took me a bit of time, but I was certainly got there and could still progress and still have a, have a career. It's great insight. So you're talking basically about the strength it takes during that period, but also not rushing yourself back and not putting too much pressure on yourself as you get back to immediately go back to the levels you're at before. Give yourself a bit of grace to move on and come back. That's great advice again. We're into the phase where you leave England and you fly across the world and you knew this was the right thing. Speaking to you before, I know that you feel this way. You know this is the right thing for you to do. At such a young age, how do you quantify making the decision that big and know that this is the right thing for you can you put yourself back in that mindset and think back to what you were thinking at that time because there would have been other people telling you different things obviously the FA and, and you know family and other people would have their own opinions but but you were sure yeah everyone thought it was mad everyone thought it was absolutely mad <laughs> to essentially be throwing away what I had in England but it was mm -hmm. You know, I think so, you've got to think, I, I'm a logical thinker, but also 
you just feel some things and send some yeah. things and, and going to America was one of them. And I remember telling myself, I knew it was a four year commitment, but I remember telling myself it's just till Christmas. And this was in August, you know, if I don't like it, <laughs> it a few months and I'll be home for Christmas and, and, um, you know, back from a Christmas dinner and whatever, which, which gave me a lot of comfort, gave me a lot of comfort in, the, in that moment to make such a big decision. I think maybe a little naive to a culture shock and yeah, mm. I, was raised in a city. I went to Oregon State, which is a small mm. college town on the West mm. Coast. This was when FaceTime didn't exist, smartphones didn't exist. So um, <laughs> I was probably quite a bold move and didn't realize the culture shock that I would yeah. experience, but it was a brilliant, brilliant experience. I, I grew a lot. I learned a lot. Um, but I remember my first year, my, my freshman year, and because soccer is a full sport, I was thrown straight into it. And yeah, the reality is I wasn't fit enough. Um, I think the game in, in the US, the physicality and mentality is what sets the US apart, the athleticism. And yeah, I just wasn't quite um, fit enough for, for, for 90 minutes at the collegiate level and in the heat as well. You know, coming from England, where it's, we, can, we can agree it's not, yeah, it's not, um, <laughs> not the warmest of places. Yeah. Um, it was uh, quite, yeah, it was quite difficult. But I remember with the, the college rules allowing you to, come off and go back on again that the coach had the strategy that he would take me off after about 35 minutes give me an extended break through the half time put me on in the second half when I got my second wind uh, so it took me a good season to to get to the level but I grew I you know I developed athletically and developmentally in the US I think that's like what's helped me through my career certainly as I got you know got and then we'll talk about this but as mm. I got into trying to get with the national team and mm. kind of having that belief and, and strong mentality absolutely there is definitely um it's, it's really interesting how the the college environment out here which produces so many players obviously for the u.s national teams and professional leagues with the draft system and really interesting to see some of the top english players who have also benefited like yourself from from being a hybrid really playing a lot of club football in the in the uk or in Australia in your case and you know Sweden everywhere else but also players like Lucy and Demi and others and Rachel who all played the college system and then obviously went on and played uh, internationally for England as well and they all talk about that athleticism being part of their game um, really the best of both worlds mashed into one I suppose isn't it so wh when would you say in your time out in the States that you went from thinking, well, I'll come home for my Christmas dinner if it's not right to, okay, I feel at home now. Was that, because there'll be some freshmen out there listening now who are about to go to college. And I know some personally, some young young players who have been waiting all their lives almost for this. And they're about to go to college maybe in, in the summer of next year or the, at the end of the spring of next year. And, and they're in that frame of mind thinking, oh, I don't know what it's going to be like. When would you say you were like, yeah, okay, I belong here now. This is my life, and and I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. Honestly, quite early on, it it did help having a season straight away, just thrown into the deep end. And you know, I, I love playing soccer, and to be in the season and playing two games a week and training every day. Then you had obviously the school, and and that was a whole other level of culture shock. But I, you know. I, it was by the time the end of the season, I knew I'd be back to return. But I always kind of had the comfort of knowing that I can leave at any time. And if I didn't like this, if I didn't like the program, I didn't like the school, I could transfer. I was never going to. I was never going to leave. I was never going to transfer. But just to know that you're not trapped or stuck, 
and away from home for me that like that gave me real comfort in that um so yes yeah, it, was, it was early on certainly after my freshman year then I, I moved off campus you obviously find your friend group um, end up moving into a house and settling into the, the school and, and everything else got a car you know that's where I started to feel quite settled at that point safe to say then for people about to embark on that journey as well who might be a little bit trepidation there it, it evolves it, it moves on you might feel that way at the start but as you find your feet into your second year into your upperclassmen years you start to feel the journey yourself and, and certainly for you it, it continued in that way until probably graduation came around before you knew it and then you were then you were out into the big bad world I suppose yeah absolutely and it went so fast honestly it really did um and they, they were great years colleges were great years and playing top level soccer with your friends and getting an education busy it was really busy um but yeah it was, it was a great experience and I, I don't regret regret it one bit even though it helped me back from making the national team for many years that might have been the football association's mistake but we'll get on to that as well because they rectified it in the end um or you you made them rectify it in the end i should say so you're out in the world you've graduated you've got the entire world in front of you the football world and your your actual life and you take a year off and you kind of do some time for yourself and search a little bit tell us a little bit about that decision and, and what happened then yeah so as i was ending my college um experience um it was four years in i'd gone to a combine to further pro league that had just started in the us or was just about to start the wps um i mean this was many years ago and had some interest from one club and they said so at the time i was didn't have a green card was considered international you could have five internationals per team so one club were interested and said you're going to be our fifth international pick so I was really happy about that I wanted to stay in America you know I was a bit worried about my visa and everything else um and yes I was really really happy about that and then I got a call a few weeks later to say you know for whatever signings and circumstances that come up sorry we're not going to offer you that position anymore so at that point I was stressing because I I wanted I, I love America I wanted to be in America but also I wanted to keep playing and I just felt like I was at a bit of a crossroads. The opportunity wasn't quite there in America to play. So I had to make that decision. Do I want to stay in the US and not play or accept leaving and continue to play? And, and at that time, I decided to stop playing and stay in America. So I uh, took an assistant coaching job at a D1 school, went to Fresno State. Um, a job opportunity came up and yeah, I thought that's what I wanted. And then I got into the job. And I was just like, I miss playing. <laughs> and I mean, I saw out that that the academic year, but I just remember being out there at training and just wanting to play. And when I got the opportunity to join in, I felt at home. So yeah, it was, you know, I think I was, it was a good experience, but I was just too young for it. And ultimately I just wasn't done with playing, but I think I needed that at that moment in time to really get that fire back for playing and to realize how much it means to me and that I am willing to go anywhere for it. And, you know, at that point, so I ended up handing my notice in, which um, the head coach at the time, he, you know, I always said, I'm done playing. And he knew, he knew I wasn't, um, but he was supportive of, about my decision. So I packed my bags and off I went uh, on this quest. I remember telling myself, right, I'm going to try and make the national team felt you know, it's lofty I completely fell out of the game but I was like you know I want to try and get 
to see how far I can go with this and try and make the national team. And first stop was, right, I'm going to go play in England. And whether the, the league at that point in time had just finished uh, winter season and they were going into a summer season. So essentially there was an eight or nine month break in the league at the time in that I decided to, that I want to keep playing. So I was like, right, I'm going to go play in the summer W league, which I did when I was at college. I played for a couple of different teams, one of which was Ottawa Fury up in Canada. So I, I went up there, went there to, to get back playing for a couple of months. And my time there, there was a few, was, I had a bunch of teammates from all over the world and there's a few Australians. So I was speaking with them about the Australian league because that kind of runs through, you know, Northern hemisphere winter, their summer down there so and long story short went to Australia to play for a few months so the plan was go there and then by the time the English league starts up go play in England so that's what I did and I spoke to a bunch of the English clubs but because I went to college I stopped playing no one knew who I was so I wasn't really getting any opportunity I'm from Liverpool just outside of Liverpool spoke with Liverpool Coach had no idea who I was, said, you know, you can trial for the reserves. So I said, okay. <laughs> there, was only one, there was only one club and manager that remembered me um, and, off, really? and offered me a contract. So that was um, Birmingham. It was Marcus Bignett and David Parker mm-hmm. at Birmingham. And at the time, they were just behind Arsenal. Arsenal have always been the most successful team in the league. Then it was Birmingham and, and Everton fighting out. So it was a top team. He remembered me from back in the day in the time at Tramia, the 15-year-old. So yeah, he um, offered me. So I thought, right, I'm going to do this. And so I ended up going back. Um, and this is kind of where the sacrifices set in. You know, there was, we say a contract that was just about getting to semi-professional. And this was very, not enough to live on. It was a few grand for the year. Um, but I thought I'm going to do it because it's a good team. And it's, again, on this journey to try and make the national team. So lived with my sister, had a lot of support from my family. I didn't want to get a job because I knew it would take away from my training. Although we only trained twice a week, I did my own training. I I trained as a full-time athlete. And I think from playing at college and knowing kind of the, the level athletically, physically, mentally you need to be at, that's where, you know, I was like, right, I'm going to do my own training. And I had a good plan from the club. So anyway, I, you know, I went there and I had a really good season, very good season and a half that I, that I played at the club. Um, I played with some of the, top players there was a handful of uh, national team players at the time there was um Kaz Carney Joe Potter Jade Moore Laura Bassett Eniola Luco Rachel Williams top class team um so I yeah I ended up going there playing a lot played most games always on edge um if, if I were playing not and scored some goals and at the end of that season I, I just felt like the league still wasn't professional enough and that I, I wanted a continue on and, and keep developing so I had an opportunity that came up to go to Sweden so I went to play for Gothenburg and that was fully professional that was my first fully professional team in terms of contract and that they train every day again contract was so little to the point that I ended up having to go to the club and ask for an advance in my pay you know it sounds like it sounds good money but then when you've got the taxes over there and you're getting your you having to pay for your own apartment and bills it was expensive, you know, that was the whole thing. Um, but again, it's these sacrifices I was making to try and improve as a player. So that was the first, that and that was 2013, it was almost 10 years ago now, that that felt like the most professional environment. We had our own stadium, we trained every day. That was um, 
again, it was another great season that I had and scoring goals, playing well, playing with a lot of teammates who were with their national teams. And it was that, it was a moment in that season where, I, I, you know, I, can't, I always had this like, you know, I, I want to play for England. I want to see how quick I can get. But there was a moment in that summer when they hosted the Women's European Championships in Sweden. And I went to a game because we were on a break, went and watched these games. And it was a moment in I was sitting in the stand watching the game. And it it just like, uh, it was like a moment where I was like, I know I'm good enough to be here. And it was the first time, like I kind of knew and had hopes to, but I was sitting there thinking, I know I'm good enough to be playing at this level and, and in these tournaments. And that was the moment where it clicked for me. Um, and the, you talk about belief and, um, but still I was nowhere near the England team. I wasn't getting selected, but it was just, it was a feeling I had, like I knew, I knew I, I belong here. So then it was continuing on this journey. You know, I can keep going. Fascinating. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. What I'm really struck by there, two things really is, I remember the 2010-ish to 2013, 14-ish, perhaps before we'd even met. I remember women's football at that time. I was following women's football. I was watching the FA Cup final on a Saturday. It was the only game you could watch. I know Bristol was starting to become a little bit of a, a powerhouse in the Super League around that time, and that wasn't far from where I lived. So I'd go and watch some of those games. And I had a wonderful friend, I still have a wonderful friend, Kath Morgan, who played for Wales, 50-plus uh, caps for Wales. I remember Kath at that time, 2010, 11, 12, doing her own training, always super professional, constantly hydrating, bringing her own food into the office we were working together and I'm just watching her in awe thinking about what she had to go through to just remain professional and be ready to play at the best she could and literally do it all alone just like you said no support no team around her often couldn't even train with her team out running on her own and I just remember uh, remember seeing her at that time thinking like the dedication the professionalism in in the female players at that time it was always going to get to where it is now because people were that strong in their mindset the second piece, the second piece is you had that moment in Sweden where you knew you were good enough. And I'd heard Fernando Alonso talking about this on the High Performance co uh, podcast recently, where he was saying that he knew in himself that he was better or felt he was better than Michael Schumacher. And Schumacher was always considered to be, certainly to me growing up, was the best F1 driver, raced for Ferrari, the red car, everything that comes with it. But Fernando Alonso was kind of coming behind him thinking, I'm. I'm the number one. And obviously since Fernando Alonso has reached the top and done everything he's done as well. And I see the parallels there in what you're saying in terms of you just knew years before you'd even broke in and become the player you were going to become, the world star you were going to become. You knew it. And that's a moment I know our listeners out there are going to be thinking, well, how? How like, do you just decide that day? Did a series of events align? Did the stars align? Did someone say something to you that clicked like what was it in that moment in sweden that you can share with others if they haven't had that moment yet or or maybe working towards it that they can perhaps draw from from you there that's a good question so i know playing in england i was my teammates who i was on the pitch with and being just as successful as they were going away with national team camp and i was kind of left behind 
and it kind of knocked your confidence and belief a little bit with, with that. Even though I, I felt I was still competing at the same level, I just wasn't getting the opportunity. I think what changed in Sweden, it's like I felt like I was going at a league above in a way. The, the English league then wasn't as strong. The Swedish league was a better league and I was playing in a better team that was training every day. And I think that the difference was sitting in that stand, I'm sitting watching, it was like Sweden were playing someone. And there's a handful of teammates that I was playing with um, at Gothenburg and on the other team, whoever they were playing. I'm sitting here thinking, these are doing really well in this tournament. They they went progressed really far in the tournament. I think England bombed out. And I'm sitting there thinking, these are arguably better, like a, a better team, better players. And I'm I'm performing with these, if not better. I think I was top top goal scoring the league at the moment at that time. And so I that's like, no, I know I'm good enough. I am like I'm playing day and training day in, day out with these players and performing just as well as them. And I'm seeing them now on the world stage performing. I know I'm I deserve I know I deserve to be there. I know I should be there. And, and I think a, a lot of players, and I'm certainly one of them who struggled a bit with confidence and belief. Even though you kind of have an inner knowing of like, I want to be at that level, or I think I can. There's still something that was holding me back of a like a confidence and a belief. And then it was after that moment I thought, no, I, I know this, and just gave me more confidence and belief as well. And I think I was fortunate with the clubs that I was playing for, and I think a lot of belief and confidence comes from your teammates and from the coach, like playing. If a coach is going to play like a lot of the time, they trust you to help the team win and perform and succeed. Like that also instills you with confidence and belief as well. So it was a mix of a few things, but I think that's that's essentially what it was. It's it's really interesting because yes, you were in a moment that you were prepared to, I, I've done a bit of reading around insight and how insight comes around. And, and the general vernacular is that people think the aha moment, everyone's had one with, oh, that's a great idea. If people think it's a romantic thing that, you know, just geniuses have. But the research would tend to suggest that it's a level of preparedness and readiness meeting a moment of opportunity or, or certain factors. And then it's your perception of those factors that then draws you to the conclusion, which we consider to be insight. And you've just articulated superbly how you were ready and waiting for that moment. And then when you realized, actually, I play with these players every day, there's your moment of, of inspiration. And hopefully there's a lot of people can draw maybe some strength from the fact that it isn't just this romantic notion that is out there. It is something you can work at and it's something that you can prepare yourself for, as obviously you did. Fantastic insight. So... At this point, we're still outside of what we would now know you as, you know, the the international superstar, the Champions League winner, the, you know, the the individual accolades at international level. We're just shy of this. Can you take us up to that point when you got the call and when you kind of first understood that this dream of actually playing for the England team was going to become a reality and you're starting to step into this? You must have had a feeling, an inkling it was coming and then all of a sudden it's there and tell us yeah. about that. Yeah, I remember. I remember it was after my time in Sweden had finished. I was back home visiting home, waiting to go. I was going back over to Australia for a, a short stint over there, um, figuring out my next move. Potentially, was going to go and play in the US that following year, which I always wanted to get back to the US. So when the end of results started up, there was a potential opportunity so that was in the works. And I remember sitting in a cafe. I was sitting in Costa getting a coffee and all of a sudden 
the news broke on Twitter that um, Hope Powell had been sacked as England manager. Mm-hmm. And then it was who's you know who's going to come in charge. And I think at that point I thought, oh, hang on a minute, hang on a minute, maybe maybe, maybe there's a chance here. So obviously not not really knowing what who was mm. going to take over, what the situation was going to be. That was a little bit like oh, oh okay. Um, so then I ended up going over to to Australia to play for Sydney, and because they were the Champions League before, we ended up going over to play in this international um, World Cup tournament whatever it was in japan so because we went over there there's a bunch of games in the league long story short um mark Santon ended up getting named yep. as manager who was the former bristol city coach that's right yeah so the time my time in birmingham where i had a really good season and scored a number of goals against bristol um <laughs> yeah that the league before when he was manager i think they you know, performing and doing well in the league got me the opportunity but he put on this um, camp in January during an off-season because the league was a summer league in England. However, it wasn't a FIFA date. So I was playing over in, in Sydney with all these games and it just wasn't possible to go for, for this camp. So I've like, waited all this time oh, get no. all up for, for January. And it was just, you know, the club were... I'm sure if I would have pushed and, and kicked mm-hmm. off about it that they would have... Um, potentially let me go but I just wasn't you want to be professional as well I wasn't I wasn't going to deal with that competition so I was a bit gutted that I wasn't able to go and then I ended up missing out on a couple camps after that and then I was like really regretting it so then I ended up going to the US I got a a contract to go play in the end of Brazil for Washington Spirit and I was like really thrilled to to be back in America and it took me as a slow start, I think, adjusting back to American soccer and just the pace of it and intensity and how transitional it was. Felt another step above again. Um, so it wasn't until a couple months in I started scoring goals and actually performing. So at that point, I was, you know, really waiting for like, come on, I'm waiting for this chance to to get another call up to the national team. So and it came and it, it came in about August of 2014. We're talking 10 months from the World Cup, 2015 World Cup. Yeah. So I was obviously really excited, but really nervous um, and ended up going into camp. And it was such a strange feeling um, being 28, but feeling like a rookie. And I just, yeah, I remember that camp. I was a bag of nerves. And <laughs> um, Mark Sampson ended up starting me in that game, um, which I wasn't wasn't expecting and didn't really feel prepared for thrown right in um which which was brilliant really and when when I reflect on it and we won we beat Sweden 4-0 I didn't score I think I had a I had a really good chance in that game and again if I was at club level and not so nervous I would have put it away same there was a few months after that I, I got a call up again basically from when I first went to camp I never missed a camp unless I was injured so um yeah but yeah it, it took me a few camps to really like settle in and um score goals I had had a couple of sitters I would consider sitters that I missed because I was just so nervous but but it was weird (laughs) I was was 28 year old who played in a bunch of different countries with a lot of experiences arguably more than half the team Mm. but I just felt so new and such a novice um yeah it was well it was um it was a time that was definitely worth waiting for and I, you know, it was a really proud moment. I remember walking out on the pitch in my first cap. I was just so proud, so proud of 
the hard work and the persistence and the not giving up um, and just having that belief and sticking with it, um, especially through barely earning a salary, the game not being professional, not even, again, not knowing where the game is now isn't incredible really, but even then I didn't know where the game was going to go. So I'm really happy that I stuck with it and didn't just think, right, forget this. I'm, I'm going to get a job. I'm going to get a real job now. We all are. We all are, trust me. So obviously this is where our stories interject. And this is where I first met you, obviously, as well. But there'll be people out there, you know, thinking about this, making your England international debut at 28. But you already knew at like 20 years old you were going to do it. And then having to wait eight years and work, not just wait, but work and dedicate and and get over all the things that are put in your way for that period of time as well. There'll be people out there now listening to this, going through that either as a player or as a coach, they might not be exactly where they want to be. They might, the end might seem so far away for them, but they want to hold on to this dream and they want to continue to move forward. Is there anything you could share perhaps with them specifically around that, the strength, where did you draw your strength from, how you would have done that at the time? Because there must've been some moments where, you know, you needed to just, it was just you and your voice and, and tell us a little bit about that, maybe some advice for those people. Yeah, I think for me, what got me through was just the passion and the love for the game and the most, it, I was highly motivated and I enjoyed what I did. Even though it meant moving to different countries and, there's, you know, Sweden in particular was a really lonely, isolating place, but I was driven and had the goal in mind. And I would just focus on the the progression. And I think, you know, even I, I've moved around quite a lot. And especially in that period of going to Birmingham, then to uh, Gothenburg, then to Spirit, and then moving on to Portland. Like it was that period of one season moving on because I felt like I improved. It really fueled me to have to prove myself. Mm. And then I got better and I felt that as I was developing, I felt like I was getting better that then spurred me on and motivated me even more. And even though I wasn't in the places that I wanted to be, and you know, the, the common common theme from these clubs during that period was, oh, we didn't think you'd be as good as what you are. And, you know, obviously I've taken low contracts and uh, really having to fight for my place um, because I wasn't a national team player then. And I felt like I was at the bottom of a ladder climbing up it. But I think every step gave me more motivation and gave me continued that fire to then get to the next step and the next step and I think that was the biggest the biggest thing for me to get through that period along with obviously having the belief and the, and the love for it you haven't yet I think you've got to enjoy it or at least see what your end goal is and enjoy know you're going to enjoy that and it needs to be something that fuels you but I think the progression is what really kept me going we have a lot of people listening here will draw so much strength from your story, Jody, and from you realizing this dream. And, and it's only just beginning really for you because now as you step through the door as a lioness, and as you say, you, you never really out the team or out the squad after that, you're now, you know, realizing your dream, you know, in the international setup and, and it really kicks on for you here on the world stage. You said you didn't perhaps feel prepared or ready, maybe, but you always had this constant undertone of, I'm, I can do this. It obviously became a huge success for you. You obviously had personal accolades in major European tournaments and World Cups. When when you got into your groove with England, can you tell us how that felt? Was there a point where you you talked to us about like the the stepping on the ladder? It's a great analogy, but now you're in it and and you're delivering at the highest level. 
and you've got to deliver every time you take the field. Can you tell us what it's like for Jodie Taylor to be in her flow? Like what feelings did that engender? How was that different perhaps to where you'd been before or was it different at all? I don't know. I think once I got into the national team set up, again, I spoke about my first cap being about 10 months out of the World Cup. I still felt like I had so much to prove and I wasn't taking anything for granted. So certainly that year, I was doing everything I possibly could. Um, I got a first start. I got a start in my first game, which was brilliant. But then after that game, I was back in just being on the bench, um, got on in the, in most games, the last 20 minutes or so. So it certainly was not a starter at that point. And I know that I expect to be, to be honest. I was just happy to be there um, and to get adjusted to the level and the team and everything else. It was an, another off-season um, for my le- for my season in the US where I just trained really hard. Now I was really motivated with a World Cup in sight six months out from a World Cup. Um, you know, I was training even harder than ever before and still slightly felt um, a bit pressured in a way or stressed, should I say, because the English League was now... Um, back up and not I'm not playing in England I'm playing in the US and I still felt a bit out of it um so again that, that off season of, of players are back in pre-season and playing friendlies I felt a bit like I was trying to catch up and that that was probably the the downside of playing my soccer in America when everyone was in England because you're just on a different time frame and that came with a bit of stress so in that respect, I always felt like I was you know, trying to prove myself always. Always felt on a ladder um, for the most part. So certainly leading into that 2015 World Cup. So I ended up starting um, in this tournament in March, Cyprus Cup, and I got my and my first goal, which was a hat-trick against Australia. Yeah, which I remember I was, it well. Yeah, I was unbelievably happy with that. Um, and I remember your advice to me, because again, I'm still finding my feet in the national team and relaxing and I remember doing a lot of sessions with you um, and you gave me a really great piece of advice, which has stuck with me. And it was finish early. The goalkeeper won't be set. Shoot early, finish early. And that has come with me, you know, through, through, um, through my career. And that's exactly what I did in the three, three of the goals, the first two, especially I just hit it early in the goal. You didn't expect it. Um, But I was, yeah, I was over the moon with that. And, and from there, I, start, I started the, the next couple of games. And, and I thought, wow, I, I might actually start in this World Cup. And um, unfortunately, I um, ended up getting an injury six weeks out from the World Cup. I, I tore my lateral meniscus. So again, I'd, I was a spirit, had a great year. And then I had the opportunity to go to Portland Dawns, which was the biggest club in the US at the time. They you know, got 12,000, 15,000 fans a game. It was... In Portland and Oregon, where I went to college, I had friends there. You know, it felt like a dream move for me. Um, and, I, you know, I'll point a course on, on reflection and hindsight and all that. You know, I reflect and think, oh, should I just stay the spirit? I've just gotten the national team as a World Cup year. You know, maybe having a bit of, like, consistency would have been good. But these are all things you kind of reflect on. But it was an opportunity I just felt like I couldn't pass up. So I went there. It's all new again. And... And again, obviously, because I got injured, you're going to have that um, perspective. But yeah, I got I ended needing surgery six weeks out of the tournament. I remember speaking with the England doctor to say, listen, I've just got injured. And he was like, wait, don't do anything. We need our, our doctors to look at the scans because if you get surgery, this is an eight to 12 week injury and you might mm-hmm. miss the World Cup. 
but there was nothing we could do and I had to get the surgery um so I, I got really well looked after in, in that moment there got got the surgery a week later got on a flight home and then I was at St George's Park which is our national football center with a rehab um center there and I worked for a month straight rehab and not knowing actually if I was going to make it or not um and I remember having a conversation with Mark Sampson um a couple of weeks in and I just said to him, listen, I want this more than anything and I'm willing to do anything that it takes to be there. And yeah, I'm willing to put my body on the line for this. Um, unfortunately, he still put me in the squad. And again, that in itself gave me a huge confidence boost and gave me even more belief. And it's a squad of 23, you know, I'm just, again, happy to just be on the plane. I just wanted to go to the World Cup regardless of minutes. And anyway, I'm, so I'm fighting fit the whole time, not knowing if I was going to be able to feature or not. I met up with the, the squad had flown out to Toronto, so the World Cup was in Canada. They had flown out early. I I, I left, I stayed at St. George's and a week to rehab um, and then met up with the team. And again, I was still not quite clear to play in the first couple of games. So, I, you know, I was really happy to just be there and I was not sure if I would even feature. So I managed to get, you know, 10 minutes in the last group game against Colombia. Columbia, yeah. And it got 20 minutes to um, Norway in, in the round of 16, which was a massive game that we won. Um, probably should have lost that one, to be honest. But well, we we get, we'll, we'll get on to the quarterfinal against Canada for sure, because I want to get your insight on that. But I think that's probably a good moment for me to kind of interject. And I, you mentioned one of those moments that you had when you were in Sweden, and it was that game in Norway in the second round where, for me, I had a moment of... I don't know. I don't suppose it was the same clarity that you had because it wasn't driving me on to anything. But I will share this with people because I think, again, we've talked before on episodes about like the social media world and how everything looks perfect and rosy and everything else. But there was a period during that game we were one nil down. You'll remember, of course. Um, and there's probably 25 minutes to go, and we hadn't had the best first half. Better in the second half, but we hadn't had the best first half at all. And I remember thinking to myself, well. This England team has already broken records. We've already got to a you know a group uh, a knockout game and and you know we we can go home with our heads held high type thing. And it wasn't that you were quitting, but there's this internal monologue in your brain saying trying to convince you that you've done a good job. So even if it all collapses and goes wrong now and we lose and we're out, you know you you can you can justify the dedication and the sacrifice. And this might resonate with some people because like you said, people don't realize that it's seven weeks away from your your loved ones and just constant soccer which is we're supremely lucky to do but you know being away from your kids and, and your family and everything for that amount of time you know you you get to a point where perhaps there's still 25 minutes to go in this example like and we obviously came back and won the game um but i remember i can't say i have to say this i remember thinking with that little time to go if it all ends here you know we've done a good job and we obviously went on to win the game. So I had to face that after the game in myself internally and be like, okay, what was that moment? Like, where, where did that come along? And for me, it was the first time that really serious high-level sport had met real jeopardy. You probably experienced this playing every single time you took the field. But as a coach at that level, and that being the pinnacle of my career, it was a really important moment of clarity of like, no, you don't have to buckle there you don't have to think well okay we've done something good you can kick on and you can continue and you can live in that uncomfortable space and obviously we went on and did even more after that and and that was 
you know, 2015, what are we talking, nearly 10 years ago. I've never looked back from that moment. It was one of those poignant moments of my life and my coaching career. And I would argue one of my perhaps weakest moments mentally, but it ended up turning out to be a massive positive in my outlook. So I would interject with that. But we did come back and win that game. You played your part towards the end of that. And I remember Bronzy marauding up the right side again and scoring probably one of one of the top strikes from outside the box. She scored a few of them. But what a great feeling. What a great moment. We, we, we won that game and moved on to the quarterfinal in, in Canada against Canada. And if you hadn't already, this is a moment where you truly announced yourself to the entire world early on in the match. Perhaps you can take us through that a little bit. Yeah, well, yeah, I remember then beating Norway. Amazing, we're on to the quarterfinals. And I haven't been in the squad for long, but I was there long enough to know that there was a bit of a mental block in the team. And they had never, to date, had made it through a quarterfinal match at World Cup. They'd never got past that. So, And I could sense that a bit in the group. You know, kind of things shift, right? Energy shifts and... We knew how much of a how big of a game it was. We were playing Canada in Canada, off to Vancouver. You know, we're on this journey of going from city to city. Yeah. We end up in Vancouver. We know we're going to be playing in front of 50-odd thousand Canadian fans. Canada were the better team at the, at the time. It was a huge game for us, and obviously there's a lot of excitement. And I remember what we did, we'd announced the, the starting line of typically two days before match day minus mm. two. I remember going into that meeting, and the lineup comes up on the board. And like I said, I just was happy to be there. Got like 20 odd minutes in this game. I think I'm right. I can maybe contribute more to the next game. And it puts the lineup on the board and I'm in the starting lineup. And, and I just yeah. believe it. Yeah. And I was, you know, even though I was coming off an injury, I, I wasn't at my best that tournament, but I put parked all that. I was just so positive and optimistic to get back on the pitch. I wasn't even thinking about that. But to see my name, I was just excited and, and I felt ready even though physically probably not at my best. Like I said, I, I felt so ready for it and so excited. So getting on that pitch, that was brilliant. And, you know, this is where we, we did a lot of analysis individually with you and a couple of the staff members, which I think was massive in our development and our performances in that tournament. Um, and I remember seeing clips. He showed me clips on um, <laughs> On the defenders. Cecilman, wasn't it? It was Laura Cecilman. Yeah, yeah Laura Cecilman, yeah. who a couple games previous, I think in both games, coughed the ball up in dangerous areas mm. and, and mm. you know, that the player on the end of it just didn't quite um, take advantage of it or punish them for it. Mm. So in that game one, the game plan was as soon as she gets the ball, you know, press her, <laughs> press the, the living daylight out of her. And that's what I did. And she, she had slipped and gave me the ball. And I was, I don't know if it was around the halfway line ish in the circle yeah. and just running with the ball, which isn't really my strength. I'm more, more of a player, back shoulder player to get on the end of the balls. But I just remember dribbling with this ball and out the corner of my eye, I just saw someone flying in. So I cut the ball and then just hit it. And, you know, I scored a goal, scored the, the first goal of the game. And what, what a moment that was. It was yeah. unbelievable. What was the, uh, that game and that tournament is the, the highlight of my career. And I know I've gone on to win Champions League and, won a golden boot at you know the Euros two years after that tournament. There's there's been like bigger moments arguably, but that for me was was the biggest mm. moment and highlight of my career. And we went on to win it. We went on to win that game, which was just yeah. massive for women's football, massive for our team. 
you know, no one ever thought heading into the tournament. As much as we spoke about of we're going to make it to the final, you know, there wasn't, I didn't think there was really that true deep down belief. Mm. But to have made it, you know, to be, to win that quarterfinal match felt like a huge achievement. It's great to see you light up as you speak about that now. And obviously I remember that like it was yesterday, but, you know, for me, and people can go back and see this on YouTube and you can look at the highlights and see the moment Jody's describing, you can see in your, there's a change in you. The second your eyes light up and you see the ball going to, to Laura and, and you've got to make like a 15, 20 yard run to get there. And you're just making it with such intensity and such power that you almost knew, like you said, you were going to get this ball and the finish is superb. One of the sweetest strikes, obviously straight in the bottom corner and the celebration, you walk away with the two hands above your head. And I don't think, I think that's going to go down as one of the iconic moments of, uh, of, you know, certainly perhaps not the turning point for women's football, but definitely historic moment in, in where the game is now and where the England team is now as well. 45,000 Canadian fans and about 200 England fans. It was pretty quiet at that moment, wasn't it? But um, take nothing away from the Canadian side. Fantastic coach um, in, in John Herdman. Fantastic team, wonderful mentality they had. But that was our day and that was our time, really. So so we're into the, into the semi-final. On to Edmonton, a World Cup semi-final. Uncharted territory for the England team. And I just remember that time, you know, we're getting messages from Prince William and David Beckham's getting in touch and all kinds of things are going on. And can you tell us a bit about kind of how you, you'd had this dream for so long and now here you are preparing to be involved in a potentially a World Cup semi-final into a World Cup final. What, what was that like from a player standpoint? Yeah, preparation for the semi-final, it, like things felt real at that point. We yeah. facing Japan, you were the the previous World Cup winners. And, you know, I think this is where we talk about the belief mentality. I think of the squad back then, we, we were the massive underdogs wherever we were ranked. I can't remember now, but yeah. certainly we're not contenders for the World Cup. Even to make it out of the group was a was a big achievement. Um, so I think when we got there, we when I reflect on it, I think we did lack a little bit of belief. And even though I think we were the better team at moments in that game and, so the way we, we lost that match mm. with an own goal in the dying minutes, you know, mm. we were right there with them. We were toe to toe. Um, and I think it was a little bit of a lack of belief, maybe, or just, ha- you know, kind of happy to be there. Mm. But yeah, I'm proud of how we performed in that game. It was just an unfortunate own goal and it being in the dying minutes of that match. Um, but, you know, I think it, knowing how close we were to the final and then we had to pick ourselves back up and, and play in a bronze medal, a third, fourth match for bronze medal a few days later was difficult, but the group bounced back so well. And I think that in itself ended up, you know, helping us get that bronze medal against Germany, which is a team that I don't think we'd ever beaten or hadn't beaten. Yeah, we hadn't. First time England ever beaten them. And it was 48 hours later. It was, uh, yeah, certainly from, a, you know, from our point of view at that time, we're trying to, we didn't do much preparation in all honesty between the two days because of the emotional side and, and the dramatic nature of the game. But for you guys as a team, I remember you guys coming together and, you know, I remember sitting in the kind of breakfast hall after that and everyone kind of having this resolution that, okay, we're going to go and win the bronze medal then, and that's what we're going to do. And, you know, I remember you guys dancing in the changing room before the game and like, you know, it was just a different vibe. It was, 
it was almost like, you know, it was meant to be that we were going to do this and win this medal. And even though we'd never beaten Germany before or obviously achieved that, you as players, you group of players, as we watched on, we kind of felt different in that moment that you knew something maybe we didn't or maybe it was just written in the stars. Can you can you recant that, recant back to that and maybe share insight from, you know, from your thoughts during that time before that game and during that day? Yeah, I mean, it was only, like you said, 48 hours. It was a couple mm. of days. It was a real quick turnaround. Um, I think the staff did a really good job of kind of leading that um, mindset shift, I think, of not just being sad and down and you know dwelling on the fact that we were so close to making a World Cup final. We, we bounced back and that, that involved mm. the squad, the staff and the squad. Mm. And... Um, yeah, I just I just remember that it was it was almost like it was a it was a choice, wasn't it? We could either go out and give everything to this game. We can't change the past, but we can influence what rewrite the future. Yeah, and I think I think Mark deserves the credit here really for everyone was kind of looking into his eyes and thinking, well, what's the tone? How's he going to set this? How he's going to react? And and even me, we were all kind of looking, going, all right, well, what is you know this is uncharted territory? And, and I think he showed his leadership qualities at that time. Yeah, exactly, and. It was a lot of credit uh, from 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 Mark as the coach and the staff as well, and then it mm. filters down. And uh, yeah, it was good mm. leadership in the, in the squad. As a squad, we um, felt that too and, and bought into it. Um, but you know, one one thing I would say for anyone listening is, especially coaches out there and people who are in these positions and have such an influential role, the things that you say and the mindset that you set is so powerful. And has such an influence on the players. And I think having a manager who was very positive, bounced back, we're going to go win this, wasn't dwelling, filtered down into the team. And then I, you know, I compare that to 2019 World Cup, where same boat, we lost in the semi final into mm. the US, went toe to toe. Four years on, we, we had higher expectations for ourselves, I think. And what mm. I think as a team, the coaching staff dwelling, you know, it was a bit negative. There wasn't much value placed on a winning a bronze medal. It was kind of mm. go big or go home mentality. And that filtered mm. down into the team. And, and that was a difference. And we didn't, we ended up in you know, two tournaments, 2015. We bounced back well, had a great attitude, great mindset. Went on to beat Germany, who we'd never beaten before. Had a way higher ranked team and came away bronze medal. And that's one of the, one of the pinnacle moments in my career. Goes to 2019. We didn't have that same attitude. We didn't have that mindset from the players and from from the coach and from the staff. Mm. And that was the difference as to why. And then we ended up losing that game against Sweden. So you have a lot to I, be said about that. Again, amazing insight. I wouldn't expect you to say this, but I will. I was extremely disappointed with Phil Neville's comments after the game. I still am. I don't know Phil, but I was extremely disappointed. I thought it was very disrespectful. And I thought he was just a bit tone deaf at the time. He, he just missed the moment there talking about it was a nonsense game. And I quote him, he called it a nonsense game. People in women's football, people involved in England, people, fans of the team, people who understood the women's game would never have called it a nonsense game. I understand it's not the game you want to win in 2019. And, and you, you put it perfectly, times move on, expectations change. But I thought he was tone deaf at that time. And I, I have absolutely no problem saying that myself. So, yeah, amazing insight again. It, it does it does kind of parlay itself, the 2015 Women's World Cup tournament, into 
a microcosm of where the game was going at the time. And as as so often World Cups do, they dictate the nature of the beast, if you like, in terms of the you know trends that football goes in. For women's football at that time, there were so many firsts. There was an actual win of a medal of any colour for the first time for the women's team, the first team to win a medal since 1966 uh, in an England shirt. And and that probably in some way at least sparked um, a little bit of you know what we're seeing now and, and with the England team doing so well in 2019. We were very, very close again, as you said, run the US all the way. And I think that's probably one of the first times even though we'd won the She Believes Cup at that point, it was one of the first times where the football world had to stand up and say, there's no difference now. If, if anything, England has overtaken the US at that point, even though they won that game. And that's kind of the trend that's kind of continued into the World Cup we've just seen. I know you were there. I know you did um, you know, some work on it. And, and can you tell us a little bit about perhaps that shift that you've seen from 2015 to now and Obviously, you lived it. You were right on the on the heartbeat of it, and and you'd have seen the ups and downs of it. But as we enter the super professional era for women's football, maybe speak on that for coaches. You know, what is it that coaches do right? You said they're one of the examples. What is it that they do wrong? Aspiring coaches out there now, what insight can you give them from a player's mind, a top elite player's mindset about maybe some of the pitfalls and mistakes that they make? under pressure in those moments? Brilliant question. You know, I think as the game has professionalised and you're playing at that very highest level, but I think at, at any level, it can even go back to college, you know, college coaches, pro coaches, everyone in between. I think as players, you you just want the truth. You want honesty. You want to be respected and you want to be communicated well to. And for for me, respect is a huge thing. Respect, honesty, and trust. And of course, there's some things I think that coaches maybe you can't be completely honest with every player in every moment, but you can be more honest. You can communicate well. You can be transparent, and you can kind of you know, give tr- give respect to players. And you know, I I've gone through many different coaches, teams, experiences where I've either been first name on the team sheet to then probably the last name on the team sheet and a coach that loves me and a coach that doesn't rate me. Um, And, you know, there's been a few moments where maybe I have been dropped or I'm not playing um, and things have been handled very differently in different environments. And one thing I always stick with, of course, it's going to be like, no one wants to get dropped. No one wants to be, you know, told that they're not playing in a game. And you're sad about it and whatever. It's always going to be emotion. But I have so much more respect for the managers that told me straight up, pulled me aside and said, this is the, you know, I'm not playing this reason why, but still treated me like a person. Because I think, you know, we can probably all, all know we've had experiences with managers where you're playing and, and they'll talk to you and, and then all of a sudden you get dropped and and just ignoring you or just trying to avoid you. That makes you feel so much worse. And there's been moments when I was at Leon, you know, I think mm. there's games where, I felt like I should have been starting games and I didn't. Mm-hmm. The manager still treated me exactly the same if he was playing me or not. Mm-hmm. They'll shown me respect as a person. Mm-hmm. And I've had managers who wouldn't do that. They'd avoid eye contact, avoid speaking to me in the hallway, dodge me. And it's just that, you know, already it doesn't feel great that you're, you're, you're not yeah. playing. 
um but then to, to like as a person to not be treated I just you just want consistency you just want to be treated well and respected and honest conversations are difficult but I still have so much respect for the managers that told me that the hard things and and again it goes both ways I think as a player you have to be receptive you have to have a good attitude um I always asked please can you just tell me if I'm gonna if you're gonna drop me you know I I want to be professional I want to know but I just want to know and so I don't like if like coaches won't have a conversation with the player before beforehand um I I personally like to know and I just want to be treated well we are people as well I think of course I'm fascinated by this and I know there's a lot of people listening who want me to get into detail on this two things really first of all you my experience of working with you 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 were certainly one of the most receptive players, elite players, who wanted knowledge, feedback, information, discussion. There was, I could put, you know, some of Europe's top players, men's and women's, in front of you and and talk to you about concepts, and and you just wanted more and more and more. Ha, is that something intentionally? You talked there about it a little bit, but like you being receptive to the information, perhaps that is coming or the support that might be there. That has to play a big part in the end outcome, I think, in terms of your development and you reaching the heights you did. But some players might not feel that way. They might, oh, I don't want to listen to this, or I haven't got time to listen to this. I've got other things I need to prioritize, or I've got, you know, even now, we professional players have their own businesses to run and all the kinds of stuff they have to do outside of football. What, what made you so receptive, perhaps? And what could you tell younger players coming through about that? being receptive to information and being coachable because a lot of people aren't yeah yeah I just always felt like there was more to learn and I think for me it was important to have an open mindset to new ideas new concepts new ways of doing things whether I agreed with it or not I'd give it a go Mm. Mm. I think especially with the national team going to new clubs it helps I've I've moved different places and I've had to adapt I've had to figure out quickly what's the style what's the philosophy what does the coach want some of it you agree with, some of it you don't, but mm. I think you've got to give it a go. And especially as the game's pro- progressing, getting more professional, there's new things thrown out. We're doing more you know, sports psychology comes a big part of the game. And we did a lot of team togetherness st- mm. stuff with the national team um, during our time there. You know, you've got then you've got analysis and all this data now, and there's all these different areas. And then you've got SNC, you've got all these different things where all this new technology resources are coming out. Some of it I like, some of it I don't, but I'll always give it a chance. And I just think there's always a way to learn. You learn from the good and learn from the bad. And yeah, yeah I just think being open. And at the end of the day, I think people like like yourself, you, you want to do analysis with people because you want to help. I think everyone mm. in the game, they just want to help and believe that mm. this might give you that edge. When we talk about mm. the highest level, marginal gains, that 1%. Mm. And if you can get a little bit better in in one percent here, one percent there, ends up making a big difference for you. So, for me, I wanted to give the time and effort to it, um, at least once. And if I didn't like it, then I wouldn't do it again. But at least try and, and just be open to new things because it could help you. I think there's so much to be said for that in terms of trying something and offering, uh, being open to something. But ultimately, there's so many, you know, coaches, support staff, agents. Like there's, there's. You know, and even going back to kind of young people, there's teachers, there's people in your life. I think olden days, we'd have been like, well, respect your elders or respect people in authority. What I like now is people are having to earn respect from people. 
You know, teachers have to earn respect in classrooms from young people. It's not just a given that you respect the teacher. Well, what if that teacher isn't isn't good or doesn't, you know, doesn't come across with enthusiasm, isn't thinking about your individual learning development? You know, maybe they're just dialing it in. We know that's the case. Sometimes with coaches, sometimes with players. And I like the fact that elite players are thinking to themselves, well, I'm going to work this out. I'm going to have this or am I not? And if they're not, walk away. We see this a lot. We see this with uh, Ronaldo and we see this with, you know, top, top players. Sometimes they're all in and other times they do things you think, well, that's a bit off the off the cuff or close to the bone. But ultimately, they're the ones deciding who they will respect and who they won't. Um, and there's a guy out there called Drew Broughton, who I was very fortunate to work, work you know, do a course with, one of Drew's boot camps. And he, he's been deemed the fear coach. And his whole premise is about uh, dealing with fear and dealing with high performance and you know how to how to manage your own emotions and he, he has this concept of healthy disrespect and i think we see a little bit of that maybe now in the in the top level of the game with some coaches are some players are just not having some coaches perhaps and and they are having others and instead of blowing things up and telling managers you're rubbish you're useless it's just this kind of idea of healthy disrespect and i'll just move on and that's kind of what happens isn't it players just they don't tell you you're an idiot but they just oh, i'm not listening to that guy or that lady i'm just going to move on would you say that there's been times in your career where you've been more receptive to that stuff and then there's other times where you've been like, oh, I'm not listening to this, but yeah, okay, no problem. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this clubs are played for where you don't see eye to eye with the manager, they don't rate you and it's kind of mutual. Um, mm. But at the end of the day, in that moment, there's nothing more you can do than to just you know, focus on you know, focus on yourself, find another way to improve and put your head down and then you move on. Like that that is mm. just the reality of it. And I've always been of that mindset. I think as a player, there's a lot of things that isn't in your control. You know, sometimes you can't pick the manager. You can't yeah. it's not your choice if you're playing or not. A lot of decisions are made for you and, and impact you. And mm. there's been a lot of moments in my career. I think they've been the, the biggest challenges. Even injuries, you know, there's a lot of things that are just out of your control and out of your hand and you've just got to let it flow and you've just got to make the most of a bad or difficult situation. And again, there's, there's always lessons I always learn and it's like you either do do something well, you're either successful or you learn from it. You always learn something, even from the bad situations. I would argue that you learn more from the more difficult situations and learn more about yourself and your character. And, you know, would I have handled things a bit better was I the best person in this moment? Could I have still progressed and, and fo had a focus rather than being distracted by the bad things going on? Or I don't agree with it. I don't like the coach, I don't like the team. And then I end up not being a good teammate or a good person or trying as hard as what I can. And I think they're the moments that really test you and test your character. And I've always been of that mindset of don't have any regrets. Even if it's a really crappy moment, you know, this this too shall pass is what is the famous quote. And it does. Just want to pick up on that second point. You mentioned about the the coaches, perhaps who had dropped you, and then just all it's a low bar, isn't it? I can't believe this is the case with elite players, but it invariably is. They 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 avoid eye contact. They don't talk to you in the corridors. Like, how does this actually play out in real life? At some point, like they must be aware that they're doing it, and that at some point they must come back to you and be like, "Oh, I need you again now." How does that actually play out? Because from a from an elite player's point of view, there'll be loads of people listening that want to know this, and you can give the insight. How does that actually play out? <laughs> I can see you shaking your head. There. It's it's a difficult. I think, and this is where when I talk about management, coaches and management, 
you just need to pe- treat people with respect you know I think in the game a football game of soccer anything can happen and you need people and you need to keep people in it and coaches just need to treat people better and it's and it's because it's uncomfortable I think it's the discomfort of a coach discomfort of a manager and that's why they don't have the, the honest difficult conversation they don't want to face it but the reality is is that it comes with consequences and the reality is that you you treat a player like that you, you're going to lose them they'll either be annoyed they'll be upset they'll be angry they might not like you anymore it's going to create negativity it's going to really impact that person even if they even if the player can rise above it and be professional you still knock the confidence you've still something negative there's some sort of consequence there and then the reality is you might need that player the next week or the next couple of weeks as a player get injured or players not performing and then now you've got to try and pick them off up off the floor and I think that's the difficult part of it and um yeah I I know it's 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 a message to, to coaches and managers is just treat people well and, and have respect, you know, and, and and I think it goes, like I said, it goes both ways. Players need to understand that you might get dropped. You might and it is a hard job. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But, you know, I think your players will always say they want the truth. They want honesty. And for the most part, maybe younger players are a bit different, but especially as you get more experience in the game, you, you know, if a coach is telling you the truth or not. Yeah. So it is, it's hard to bounce back from, but again, it, there's a, there's a lot of levels to it and I think that management is hard I'm not, you know, I'm not knocking that I think it's a very complex and difficult job but I'm all about people first and I think if you can treat people as well as you possibly can they might not be happy with the decision they might still not like you know I think it's a hard job for a manager you can't keep everyone happy no you can't you're right you can't keep them happy and that is the hard part but I'm I'm always blown away we had this in episode three we talked to Rob Sherman who gave some great insight on this as well and I just I'm amazed that the bar is so low that so many elite managers and coaches just struggle to have a difficult, honest conversation. And to have you here just a couple of months out of retiring from what is a glorious career all around the world at the highest possible level, like we said, Champions League winner, top scorer, Euro 2017, bronze medal winner at World Cup. And and the insights that we keep hearing are please, coaches, just treat people better. It, it is a sad indictment of the profession at the moment, I think. And that's not to say everybody is you know, bad, not at all, balanced, of course. But it does keep coming up that people just avoid difficult conversations for whatever reason. And I'm, I'm not sure that we would accept that in the medical field or in you know, policing or in the teaching industry. If I went into a school with my kid's teacher and couldn't have a difficult conversation, I'd be, I'd be worried. You know, but this is something I think we need to address and get better at. And hopefully, uh, when more players come up the game like you and give this kind of insight, the aspiring coaches listening, especially, can start working on those skills now, wherever they are. They don't have to be at the top level yet. They dream of being there. But what you're saying to them directly is, listen, get out there in whatever environment you're in, have a hard conversation, deal with players as human beings, whether you are running a voluntary team, a kids team, whatever get those skills now so when you become a top-level coach in the game and work with players as elite as you are, you have those skills. That's what you're saying, isn't it? Absolutely. You've said it better than what I could put it. Not like you. It's not even being It's being honest and harsh. You can be honest and you can be caring with people. And it's ultimately just a sign of respect and, and treat, treating people well, yeah. even though the message you're giving them isn't maybe what they want to hear. 
you know yeah. but I, I'll assure you I think once the emotion set in for players there will be that respect that mutual respect back I think so I, I certainly I think when I look back at my own career I, you'd have to ask the players who played for me and with me but I think I think I've been able to maybe give players feedback and talk to players in a way that not just I, one of the best things I ever heard it wasn't someone saying talk to me like you would want to be talked to it was someone saying talk to me like I want to be talked to which was a different sentiment and I thought that was amazing you know it's not just about me where I come from what I want to hear or what I want to say I always try to put myself in a position of where is this player emotionally what you know what do they they need to hear the message but how I give that message or how I give that feedback or how I coach this player even if I coach this player at this time and stop this session and talk to this player every single intervention I think has to be premised by the fact is this the right time what should this be framed like yeah absolutely and it's not and it's you know i guess one point i would add to being treated well and respected is still being valued and i think that's a really difficult thing for mm. a coach and a manager to do but just because your player isn't playing starting for instance mm. you can still be valued at a team sport and valuing the whole team as as a whole and talk about squad players and game changes and subs placing value in everyone not just your star players and not just the players that play week in and week out and you know there, there are a number of ways that you can show value the value and appreciation for people even if they're not getting the the minutes they quite like on the pitch i see this in the college game a lot i hear young people being referred to as pieces and i don't think it's vindictive in the sense but i don't like the language you know they're not pieces they i, I understand the rhetoric they're, they're in a plan they fit in but they're not pieces, they're people. And I see this a lot when players are, you know, not in the travel squad or maybe not having the minutes that other players are having. You're right, they, they don't get valued in the same way. And that, I think, always coaches are missing a beat because it's the collective feeling. Again, we had we had a great example, Rob Sherman shared with us on the collective empathy of the group. He'd made a substitution basically at half time. He hadn't told the player. The player was distraught playing for the Wales under-16s team, young player. player was distraught and then it affected the entire mood of the entire team because they saw their mate in a really tough space. And he said they went back out into the second half and didn't play well for 15 minutes. And it got me thinking about like what you're saying here. It is so important to consider you know, the human side. And you can't not make that substitution because someone will be upset, but how you handle it. Like you said, pull them to the side. You always wanted to know if you weren't going to play. That's not a high bar to think about things before you, you judge them. If we want to be professionals, I think that's something we should, we should be taking on board talk a lot about you know coaching licenses and, and getting your x's and o's and development in that respect but young players and in fact any type of players but especially young players that that teaching and that human side of of the game i think is so important um so hopefully hopefully more licensing and more education should i say will be implemented for for these coaches and aspiring coaches coming through to to really just treat people well and, and have honest conversations and the right conversations, knowing that it's going to impact players and how they perform. At the end of the day, it's about performance. And if you can keep players bought in, if you can keep players feeling valued and confident and, and keep the belief, I think that's only going to help your team. Absolutely no doubt about it. Some fantastic insights and some great inspiration for the coaching profession, of course, that was why we started this pro player podcast in the first place to bring the superstars of the women's game and the coaches involved right into the, you know, the hearts and minds of 
people aspiring to be in the game or people in the game now. So thank you for that, Jody. Brilliant stuff. Let's move on, kind of wrap up a little bit with, you know, post-2015 and the new era of professionalism and Champions League wins and Euro 2017 and moving clubs again. You know, talk to us a little bit about that period of your career, if you will. So post-2015 World Cup, I um, was back at club, still suffering with my knee injury because I really did push it through that through the 2015 World Cup, which I wanted to. Um, so struggling off the back of that. And then I unfortunately got an Achilles injury, uh, she believes. And I think just back-to-back injuries for me and feeling this, what would I say? It wasn't pressure, but it was like a perceived pressure from me about being in England and seeing that the game has grown off the back of that tournament. I just thought, I think I need to be back in England and in preparation you know, for this next year and a half in preparation for the 2017 Euros. So I moved back and I signed for Arsenal. Um, and I was, I was injured a lot through that year. And, you know, fortunately, the England set up and Mark Sampson, the head coach at the time, still believed in me and had and valued me. Um, and that's kind of what kept me through those years of injuries, I think, that kept me going and kept kept my confidence high. And it was all, all of all that period was about the 2017 Euros. So um, I think it helped me, especially having the six week preparation of, of the 2017 Euros. Uh, it was a brilliant prep. It, it you know, got my fitness levels up. I got my injury kind of um, settled a bit. And yeah, it, it was just a, it was a great preparation of a tournament that was going to be in Holland. And you know, I really enjoyed that time. And I, I was starting to feel healthy heading into a tournament. So I was excited about that. Um, whereas I felt like the two two years prior in that 2015 World Cup, I, I wasn't healthy and wasn't at my best because of because of the surgery that I had right before it. So yeah, I was super excited for for the tournament. I remember the first game against Scotland. It was a 9 p.m. kickoff. The days just felt so long, and I think we were one of the later games in the tournament. So we're sitting every day watching all the games. I just couldn't wait to get going. And I remember in that, all, all day just nervous about it and just thinking about I just want to play well I just want to play well I hope we win just want to play well and we ended up battering Scotland and I scored a hat-trick and scored three yes exactly yeah yeah. so I was so happy about that and obviously the first game nerves get them out first goal nerves get them out and yeah it's a great way to to start the the tournament so strong and yeah we just kind of built momentum as, as the tournament went on and um, I remember we played Spain and this was this was the start of seeing a really good Spanish team. They played us off the park in terms of possession. They must have had about 70% possession, like no no exaggeration. It felt like the, one of the most stressful games, but we were very clinical on the two counter-attacks that we had and we ended up winning the game. Um, anyway, it was, a, it was a brilliant tournament. We then played France, which was another team that we haven't beaten about 40-odd years, they said, and <laughs> scored a crucial goal in that game as well. That was a quarters. Um, and then, yeah, unfortunately, we, we faced the Netherlands and Netherlands in the semifinals. And even though we, it, I think we took a lot of confidence from that ex- similar experience of our cup playing Canada in Canada, but this was like, just felt like another level. You could just feel the energy in the sea of orange in the stands. And I remember in the, in the warm-up, obviously a bit tired at that point and then you could feel the energy of this and you could just feel the buzz and I was a bit like uh oh <laughs> this doesn't feel great um and yeah they just they just had something else that 12th player in the stands just really um helped them I think as well 
Um, and they were the better team on the day, unfortunately. Yeah. So, yeah, we were so close to making it to a final. I did think whoever was going to win that semi-final would have gone on to win it. And, of course, they did. So uh, I did end up getting a golden boot in that tournament, which was a brilliant individual achievement. And yeah, I've said this throughout, and I'll say it again, is that I wouldn't have got the golden boot without my teammates, the, the type of player I am. I rely on service and very good service from my teammates and the timing of that and the quality of it. I'm not a player who's going to pick up the ball at the halfway line and take on four players to score. It's just not my game. And um, you know, my, my game is my movement, um, exploiting space and being in the right time, the right place, and really rely on the service of others. So the quality of my teammates really were the ones that got me the goals in that in that game and in that tournament. And I must say that the preparation that that was a continuation of the work we did with you at the national team. It was a lot of you know, doing a lot of finishes in front of the goal, getting that confidence in front of the goal. That really helped. And it, and it was more about the process that, you know, I didn't set myself a goal of I'm, I'm, I'm going to get, I'm going to be top goal scorer of this tournament because I, I didn't, it's good to have lofty goals and like your main goals. But what I focused on every day was the process. And again, it's out of your control. I, my game relies on the people. If they're not going to get me the ball, I'm not going to score. Right. So I just focused on, when I get my opportunity, be clinical and being able to focus on the things that I can control. So if a, wherever a ball's coming from, am I arriving at the right time? Is my movement right? What's my finish like? You know, technical ability. Um, is it, where can I see the space? And the, what's the goalie giving me? Reading the goalkeeper, doing you know. So focusing on the things that I could control rather than I'm going to score a hat trick in this game. I'm going to win the golden boot. I just felt like it was a bit unrealistic to focus on that as much as that's your dream that was clearly my dream my focus it was just about when I get a chance score you know um, yeah. that's what seemed to work for me that's what you did for sure that's what you did many many times in that tournament it's it's something that we talk about a lot the process getting involved in the process engaging in the process it's great to hear you give that insight for aspiring players out there now who will want to have a level of control and want to score in every game. And it's just not how it works. Top, top players like yourself, focused in the moment, prepared for the moment, ready for the moment. And don't underestimate what that takes, by the way, for you to actually arrive on the end of that pass in front of the goalkeeper, in front of 50,000. Like you didn't just arrive there by luck. That's, that's years and months and, and lifetime of preparedness. But it is a process of putting the ball in the net and finishing off your bit of that move. And it's it's a test to your character, Jody, to hear you talk on the top of winning individual accolades. And often number nines are held up in the highest regard as the goal scorers. But it's testament to your character to hear you dedicate that to your teammates. And it, it, it's exactly what I know of you as a person as well. We're going to wrap this up here, but that you're going to come back and do some masterclass work with us on our on our pro player Patreon, where you share those insights and talk to young players. Anybody who wants to subscribe can hear. Uh, you really talk about how you get into these positions and how you do what you do. And that's going to be an amazing share, you know, exclusively with the ProPlayer.com. So we can't wait for that. But ultimately, amazing for you to give us so much time, so much insight, such a window on the world of what it takes, you know, only a couple of months removed from your playing career. Amazing to have this insight, level of insight with a player at your level, Jody. We can't thank you enough from everybody here at the ProPlayer.com. And we're very excited about what you will go on and do next. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Um, it's great to share my experiences and I'm really looking forward to our masterclass series to to get into it a little bit more in detail and hopefully help some players out there. 
Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Jodie. Yeah, thanks, Coffee.